Welcome to Language U, a podcast about language, literacy, multilingualism, and English as an additional language, among other things, in university contexts. I'm Joel Hang Hartsey, coming to you from the Center for English Language Learning, Teaching, and Research at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. What is first year composition? Why do universities continue to offer this course when a lot of people don't seem to even agree what the purpose of it is? If you've spent any time teaching first year writing in a university context, you've probably encountered different people across the university who have different ideas about what it is and what it's for. Some people see it as a basic foundation, the skills that students need to succeed in the university. Others see it as a place for students to raise their awareness of political and social issues. Some students just see it as a hoop they have to jump through to finish their degree. And within the internal politics of universities, the role of composition has often been contested. In order to find out more about this, I talked to Ryan Skinnell, the author of the recent book Conceding Composition, A Crooked History of Composition's Institutional Fortunes. Skinnell's book is based on archival research on the composition program at Arizona State University over a nearly 100-year history. According to the book's publisher, Utah State University Press, first-year composition became the most common course in American higher education not because it could fix underprepared student writers, but because it has historically served significant institutional interests. And this really interested me. What is composition, and why is it such a political football? Why do often departments seem not to want to host it, or people seem not to want to teach it, or students seem not to want to take it, and yet the class continues to be offered year after year at institution after institution? Skinnell is an assistant professor of rhetoric and composition and an assistant writing program administrator in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at San Jose State University. He's also the co-chair of the Four Seas Regional Summer Conference being held at San Jose State in June of 2017. You can find more information about that if you Google SJSU-CCCC. Anyway, here's my conversation with Ryan. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, I want to tell you why I wanted to talk to you, and then I would love to hear you tell me a little bit about the, this project um, from your book. So um, the reason I really wanted to talk to you is that I haven't really heard anybody say what you have, which is that the kind of contested or transient or kind of marginalized nature of composition could actually be good <laughs> or could, you know, could be something, something more than just the, the annoyance that a lot of us, you know, think it is those of us who teach writing at the university. So I guess where I would love to start uh, is just kind of how did you get the idea to study kind of the history of composition, a composition program institutionally? And how did the, I know the project developed, you know, it became bigger and bigger as you got along. So maybe you could just give a snapshot of kind of how that went. So I discuss a little bit of this at the beginning of the introduction of, of the book. Um, but essentially what it started as was I wanted to do a history of the writing program at Arizona State University where I was getting my PhD. And, um, you know, when I was there, we had a, I'm going to say, iconic faculty. Sharon Crowley was there and Keith Miller was there and Maureen Daly-Goggin was there and several other people 
while I was there, we hired Paul Matsuda and Shirley Rose. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was a place where there had been several uh, formative things, for lack of a better term, in composition. So the WPAL listserv started out of ASU. Oh, wow. Uh, stretch writing as a concept started at ASU. And so I was thinking about a history that would sort of make sense of this place as a really important place uh, in the field more generally. And so it started there and I started interviewing people. Um, Dwayne Rowan was my dissertation chair and he said, you got to go interview this person and that person and this person who have been around for a hundred years and know all the stuff. And everybody I went and talked to was a... Um, incredibly warm and generous and and supportive, and B pointed me to another ten people who I had to talk to right. <laughs> about everything, right? Um, and so that's that's sort of how it got started. And I just went. So I went from Dwayne Rowan pointed me to David Schwalm, who was the first what we might call the first uh, modern WPA at ASU. Um, but David Schwalm was hired in the wake of Frank D'Angelo being there. Frank D'Angelo had been, you know, he was chair of the Four C's and all the sorts of stuff. And Frank, Frank is a guy who can talk, man. He's got the stories. So he pointed me back to some other people. And what it what became quickly clear was I had to go back and back and back. Um, but then there were all sorts of things that I couldn't make sense of. Right. So, uh, for example, the school had been a normal school, was founded as a normal school in the 1880s. And they had composition classes, they had rhetoric classes, they had all these sorts of different things. And then in 1925, so 40 years after it was founded, suddenly they in implemented first year composition. Hmm. And I could not for the life of me figure out why. They had gone from what was like English one through six, composition, uh, literature, like the very sort of broad uh, classes to very specific first year English. Hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do you get, I mean, first year English as a, as a requirement had been around since basically since the school started. Right. They used a lot of the same textbooks right so they had textbooks from adam sherman hill and and uh you know all the usual suspects and but didn't have first year composition proper until 1925 so just sort of like trying to figure that out is how i got to the institutional stuff and discovered that they changed from a normal school to a teacher's college it was a part of like a massive political um uh, process that had gone on for uh, it had unfolded I should say over the course of about a decade and finally was realized in, in 1925 and when they changed from the normal school to the teachers college they needed first year composition to make them credible as a college so that's and where it happened is that because uh, of accreditation is that because it was just seen as the done thing or what what where did that where did that need come from yeah a little bit of both um it was the done thing so by by 1925 that's what colleges and universities did 
And I contend that colleges and universities did it because accreditation, um, accreditation agencies never required specific classes from universities, right? Every university was allowed to make decisions for themselves, but there were lots of strong encouragements. Um, and in particular, first year composition was strongly encouraged at ASU over the course of uh, several years in several different ways. And the University of Arizona, which was about you know 100 miles south of Arizona State, they refused or they stopped accepting transfers from Arizona State because they didn't have the proper collegiate coursework. Including uh, composition? Not just including, but especially. especially. So in other words, in order to be seen as on the same playing field as, as the University of Arizona, they, they needed to do this. Exactly. Okay. So this, this idea of composition as a kind of like, um, I don't know, political football or, you know, I think a lot of people who work in composition uh, or broadly teaching university writing see ourselves as, you know, put upon by people who don't understand what we do. And right. I'm, I'm used to thinking of that as, um, I think many of us are used to thinking of that as just a, a, a cross that we have to bear, you know, an, an evil of, of the world we live in. But I, I feel like you don't necessarily take that perspective. And I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I, I don't think that I don't take that perspective exactly. Um, I think I would say it's a feature, not a bug. So we, we talk about it as this thing that we can sort of overcome. If we write better books and we teach better classes and we um, inform and instruct the people who run our universities, then they'll sort of give up feeling like composition is a political football that they can play with. And it's, it's a feature, not a bug. It's not an accident. Um, and this really I mean, this came to a head for me when I started thinking about and again, it, it all sort of came out of ASU, but at ASU, in the last 30 years, we've had faculty members who have gone on, mostly at other places, but some at, at ASU, to be provosts and university presidents and deans and you name it, they've gone across the world. Um, and the same thing persists at places where the president is from our field. Oh, right? wow. Yeah, yeah. So they know the game, they know what's going on, and they get put into positions where they theoretically have the kind of power that they could really make a change, and the, the system persists. Um, and that's how I got to thinking about it as a thing that it, it's part of the way that we have conceived of composition. Um, and maybe if we can give up the sense that we can change that, it allows us to put our attention and our energy somewhere else. Yeah, that's that's what I think intrigued me so much is I wonder if on the one hand, I feel like there is a sense of solidarity, solidarity that's created by grumbling about uh, yeah. how nobody understands what we do, um, which is, you know, it can be nice, but it gets to feel, you know, I'm you and I are comparatively more at the beginning of our careers and we're probably both already entrenched in that. You know, I can't imagine I can't imagine having that same complaint for for 30 years, but, you know, maybe maybe I will. I don't know. So. <laughs> 
Um, but but what is you know what um, what do what does that free us up to do? I mean, what accepting this this perspective, um, you know, where does that take us as teachers, as researchers, as scholars? Where do we go from there? Uh, you know, that's a good question, and it's one that I specifically avoided uh, answering in the book because, um, I, to me, it's a huge and terrifying question. Um, I think one of the things that, that I think is promising is that I know that a lot of people who are at the beginnings of their careers, but certainly who have been around the field for, for a long time, uh, sort of think in some ways about their career as split between composition as this thing we have to have and protect and it's valuable, but it's also separate from our work in rhetoric and our work in culture and our work in uh, language. And I mean, not necessarily separate, but often thought of in those ways, like our research and our teaching are not always aligned um, and in part, I think that is a function of the, I'm going to call it a martyr complex, and I'm sure somebody's going to be upset about that, but um, the martyr complex involved, like we have to protect this thing because it is important and valuable and under constant attack. And then sort of like in the interstices, I can go over here and write my book about uh, rhetoric and fashion or whatever it may be, right? And so I think... If we can sort of pull ourselves away from this the relationship to composition as this martyr complex, we might have opportunities to think about ways where our really sophisticated and really interesting scholarship and our first year composition classes potentially inform one another um, in much more satisfying ways. I don't think first-year composition doesn't get good research. I don't think people who do first-year composition don't do good work by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there is a lot of dissatisfaction in the field because of this split between what we think our interests are and what we think our turf needs to be. Um, and so I'd like to see us think about sort of what options exist. I don't want to prescribe anything, but I do think that we have options, opportunities uh, to sort of think about that. Yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. I made you answer the question that you refused to answer in your book. That's good. <laughs> Um, one thing I was thinking about, um, as you were talking is I've gotten interested in, I didn't, I didn't divulge this to you, but I'm, I'm actually an applied linguist. Um, <laughs> but, um, one thing I, uh, was thinking about is I've gotten interested. Um, I did my master's in more or less composition and then I went on to kind of do applied linguistics. Um, and I got interested recently in this, uh, the so-called writing about writing approach, um, which is, is cool and interesting. And to me, it's, it's one way to do kind of what you were talking about it's 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 really brings together the teaching and research in a way that I find attractive I guess yeah um, and uh, I've, I've been trying to do that in my own institution with um, 
it's, it, I think I discovered your book at just the right time, although I wasn't able to implement the thing that you inspired me to do. Um, I was interested in using a kind of writing about writing approach in my first year writing class, but asking students to do research about the history of the course they're in itself. And mm -hmm. I, I desperately wanted to do this, but right before our semester started, our curriculum was changed to be mostly all in-class writing. I got it really intrigued by this idea of what would happen if all of us decided we wanted to do historical research about our own contexts? What would happen if we wanted to get our students to dig into like, hey, why am I in this class anyway? What's the deal with this? And I wonder if you, I'm not going to ask you to suggest like how I should do this. I'll, I'll Hopefully I'll figure <laughs> it out. Although I wouldn't mind some advice. Um, but, uh, you know, I, what do you think would be in it for somebody to try to dig in the way that you did? Maybe not, you know, going back a hundred years. Um, but, you know, uh, how might you advise somebody who is interested in doing this? How might they, how might they go about doing it? And also what might it do for them? I mean, how, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess that's the question. Okay. Um, that's a good question. I, I would think about it in terms of framing. So where I am now and where I've sort of come over the last few years is to a point where I think of my first year writing class as less about how to teach students to be better writers, which is the sort of the traditional mission of that and more about teaching my students how to be um, sensitive to the ways that writing can help them understand things and uh, learn creatively and um, sort of understand and make connections in the world in which they live, right? So that is multimodal composition. That That's sort of what's informing multimodal composition. It's what, inf it's what informs rhetoric. It's what informs... Um, some of the other less slightly less instrumental um, forms of composition teaching than others I've taught in the past. Um, and so for me, what the, the work that you're talking about designing a class around that sort of uh, historical thing is, is a way for you or whoever, a way to reframe the course as making sense of where we are. Right. So writing to learn about what we are involved in and then understand how we might contribute to it. Right. We're not here to solve problems. We're not here to fix the world. We're not here to make the best business memo ever. We're here to learn about how to understand our context and how to contribute to it in, in beneficial ways that serve our purposes. And you can do that with historical research and you can do it with lots of other kinds of research, obviously as well. Um, but I think that accords really well with the, the opportunities that writing about writing offers us, right? It allows us to think uh, in a sort of larger frame than here's how we fix a thesis and here's how we um, you know, build analysis, all of which you can still do but it allows you to sort of frame it in a larger way that allows students to think about the, the work that they're doing in their class as somehow connected to the work they're doing in the rest of the world, exactly. which is you know, like mind-blowing for a lot of them. I try to tell them sometimes that the university actually is a, is a part of the real world, and some, sometimes they understand. They don't think, right? <laughs> sometimes. But so what about, I, I, that's great for in terms of, I think, uh, framing how a student could understand the value of that in a, in a first year writing course. What about somebody who, um, 
you know, either as an instructor or as a, as a professor or what have you, what might you advise, say, somebody like me, if I was going to begin a project, I want to dig into the history of, you know, composition or the teaching of writing at my own institution. Um, where would I go and, and what would I do with that? That's a good question, too. Um, within archival research and, and historical spheres in rhetoric and composition uh, in particular, but also in other parts of the field, there is the persistent narrative that we tell ourselves, which is is connected to the we've been devalued narrative. Uh, but it's about ourselves in the in the archives. We don't exist. You can't find composition. Um, there's no like first year composition archive most places. Um, and so part of what I've been trying to think through for a project I'm working on now is why would you not have something in the archives, right? So moving at it from, from that angle. And one, one reason is it's not important enough to save, right? And that's the one that we have often gone on to. But another reason is um, it's so important that it's not necessary to think about saving, right? It's not unique. It's not, um, it, it's the assumption not any, not the sort of thing that deserves to, or needs to be saved. Right. It's like, why would we have an archive about the student dining services or something? It's just a normal right. part of university life. It's just the thing, and it's always going to exist. And um, if there's an archive of, you know, like facilities, it's just to keep a record of how, who we've paid to do stuff, right? right? Um, they're not like, yeah, we still have buildings. We should probably build <laughs> an archive about the fact that we still have building. Uh, and so I think I'm trying to think about composition in that way. And from that perspective, you begin to see composition uh, in lots of different places, right? So um, president's notes, which take certain things for granted, but often in ways that make us visible, right? So there are president's notes at ASU where they were talking about, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of first year composition and make everybody teach English. I never would have found that in the English department. It wasn't in the English department. It was in the president. And, you know, if you assume that the president doesn't know that first year composition exists or what it is, then you have no reason to look there. If everybody knows what it is, everybody knows what it's here for, then it sort of opens new avenues to find composition as an assumption rather than as a, an exception. I don't know if that's the right word. but oh, That's really interesting. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you're working on right now? It doesn't have to be anything related to this, but what are your current projects of interest that people might want to hear about? Sure. I've got a few things going on. Um, I am in the process of editing a, a co-editing, I should say, um, a book. It's a rhetorical theory book in honor of Sharon Crowley. Um, so me and several of her other students are editing it, and we've solicited chapters from 18 people. I'm sorry, we sent out a call and, and have accepted nice. chapters from 18 people. Hmm. So that's in process. Um, and then sort of like on the distant horizon related to the, this book is a book about institutional rhetorics. Oh, okay. And it's sort of from the same the same working theory that institutions are everywhere. We know what we mean when we say it. We talk about them constantly. They go, you know, you can find them 
the institutes of oratory is quintillion and you know their institutions are, aristotle had theories of institutions but they're not things that we really think about in sort of specific ways um they they play a lot of different functions for us and i want to think about how institutions are rhetorical and use rhetoric and allow rhetoric and um still a lot of work to do on that one yeah but that's the sort of long-term goal uh, is to write that book next. Nice. I find that once you start thinking about, I mean, once you start thinking about the institution, which I have due to kind of some of the work that I do at my institution, you, you just get things just expand and expand and yeah. expand. And I almost, it's exciting, but it's almost scary. I almost want to bring it back down to yeah. that narrow. I spent like a year thinking about just the definition of institution. Like, can we get to a definition and, it turns out to be impossible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. That's good to know. Yeah, and so I need to figure out how I'm gonna how I'm gonna sort of make sense of a thing that we can't possibly define. Well, that's a good that's a good first chapter, anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, listen. Thanks so much for your time. Um, yeah, my and pleasure. I'll let you know when it's ready to go. So that'd be great. Awesome. I really enjoyed talking to you, and thanks you for too. the invitation. Absolutely. Take care. Have a good one. Take care, Joel. Bye. Bye. Language U is sponsored by SFU's Center for English Language Learning, Teaching, and Research. Visit our website, sfuselter.ca. I'm Joel Hanghartsey, your host. This podcast is produced by Quincy Wong and Selter. Our music is by Andrew Best. For more music and cool synthesizers, visit blamsoft.com. Special thanks this week to Nathan Conant. Thanks for listening. We can't spell language without you. That's why I want to hear from you. If there's a guest that you'd like to hear, if you'd like to be a guest, if there's some topic you think we should be addressing on Language U, send me an email. It's jhanghar at sfu.ca. That's j-h-e-n-g-h-a-r at sfu.ca.